Every avid fiction reader, like me, knows that feeling of dread when you get to the end of a book and you don't know what you're gonna read next. A few years ago, I solved that dilemma for myself by deciding I would just explore all sorts of books that dealt with magic. I was just really interested in how do different books and authors think about how magic works. It's pretty interesting, actually. You can ask me about it some other time. Some books, anyone can access magic if they just have the right words and the right tools. In other books, magic is something that you're either born with or you're not. Harry Potter, right? You're a muggle or you're not a wizard. In some books, magic is in unlimited supply. In others, magic costs something. Or when you use it, you have to balance it out somehow. And almost always, in whatever book you find about magic, there's some kind of good magic and bad magic. The dark side, the dark arts, or he who shall not be named, right? Well, what do all of these different systems of magic have in common? Magic is about power. Power to affect things out there in the world. Power over objects, the natural world, even over other people, even over your own appearance. Power to change what is to conform to what you want it to be. I imagine more than one of us in this room have thought in our lives, oh, if only I had a magic wand right now. We hate almost nothing more than feeling powerless. And magic is about power. Our culture and the church in general is talking a lot about power and how it works right now, which is overall a good thing. We all have power of some kind. Diane Langberg has an amazing book called Redeeming Power, where she talks about how power is inherent in being human. We're born with the ability to affect our environment. A baby can cry and get your attention. That's an ability to affect your environment. We have the power to do things. I can take a step, that's in my power. We have power to influence the world for good or for bad. And we have power because we are made in the image of God. At this point, we might wish God might take that back. Because <laughs> we've seen too many ways in which human beings use power in awful ways to harm rather than to bless. On this fourth Sunday after Epiphany, this season when Jesus' glory is gradually revealed to those who respond to him, Jesus is revealed as someone with divine authority and power with a capital P. And it's clear that we're supposed to see Jesus' power as a manifestation of his glory, as good news. Is it? Can we trust it? After all we've seen, after all we've experienced and been through, is any power worthy of our trust? Is any power worthy of glory? Mark says, Yes, Jesus' power is a power we can trust. This morning, I'd like to explore three truths from Mark 1 that can anchor our trust in this powerful Jesus. First, Jesus' power is a power we can trust because it is power that is truly his own. 
It's not derived from anyone else. It's not power that's threatened by anyone else's power or that needs to kind of climb the ladder in order to get it. It's not power that depends on how the crowds respond or how they vote. It's not even power removed by death. At this point in Mark, we've seen Jesus baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit, wrestling with the devil in the wilderness, calling his disciples. Now he goes to Capernaum, which is in the northern part of the Lake of Galilee, and he begins to teach in the synagogue. Synagogue worship might have felt familiar to us. It featured readings from scripture, the law and the prophets, and then someone commenting on them. Well, the people are amazed at Jesus' teachings. It says he taught as one with authority, not as the teachers of the law or the scribes. Well, what was wrong with them? Nothing, really. The teachers of the law could only teach with derived authority. Authority built on the layers of teaching that came before them, what the other rabbis had said, what the other teachers had said. Authority from this text, from tradition. I think about uh, the little bit that I know of uh, lawyering now. Legal precedent makes a difference, right? You're not out there to just come up with something new. Usually it's to interpret and to apply, to make sure you stay within the bounds of the law. Apparently the teachers of the law in Jesus's day were very cautious and you were expected to quote a number of different sources in order to support your point. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't need to quote anybody but himself. This reminds us of the Deuteronomy passage predicting a prophet like Moses who would speak the words of Yahweh to the people. Listen to him. The same way, when Jesus casts out the demon, he doesn't need to invoke the name of anyone, not even the name of Yahweh or the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Back then, attempts at exorcism were not unknown, but it usually used objects. I read about one that was like an object under the nostril. I don't know, anyway. Sorry, sidetrack. Or incantations, right? An object or these words, kind of like magic. But Jesus doesn't need to do anything other than speak. His word commands. In contrast, any power that human beings hold is derived from something or someone else. It's either a role that we're given or something we seize that isn't meant to us to have. Think about our politicians, if we have to. How much energy and money do they have to spend to preserve their power, to stay in office? How much shady stuff happens for them to keep the power, even when they maybe have good motives for serving the country? Their power is not their own, and that leads to a mad scramble ripe for abuse. Not so with Jesus. He doesn't need to use human beings to keep power. His power is truly his own. It's not derived, it's never threatened, it simply is. And it's not power in the abstract, but the power of the Lord. The Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding love. Jesus's power is a power we can trust because it is the power of the I am. Second, Jesus's power is a power we can trust because it's a power that brings freedom and abundant life. In Mark's account, Jesus's power and authority are seen in two places, in his teaching and in his casting out of the demon. And the two seem to be connected. Something about his teaching perks up 
this evil spirit. One scholar points out, it's a strange commentary on the spiritual situation in Capernaum that a demoniac could worship in the synagogue with no sense of incongruity until confronted by Jesus, and indeed apparently with no initial desire to be delivered from his affliction. So whatever was happening there before Jesus, it was not threatening the presence of this evil spirit in their midst. What did Jesus teach that felt so different? Probably something connected to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here in me, repent and believe. Or maybe something like we hear him teach in Nazareth in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus walks into the room, the kingdom of God is here. And this spirit knows it. This evil or unclean spirit challenges Jesus. In our text, it says, what do you want with us? But there's an idiom in the Greek that's sort of a like, get ready to do battle saying. The spirit names Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. That's true. But this is a power play. Remember, in this time, names were thought to have power. You use someone's name, you get the upper hand. Ha, Jesus, I know your name. State your business. Have you come to destroy my people? This is our territory. What are you doing here? Back off. Jesus is having none of it. Quiet. Out. Boom. No contest. This demon which held power over this man for who knows how long has no power at all when Jesus speaks. The holy word of God again brings order out of chaos and freedom out of bondage. He sets the oppressed free. Well, we're in the 21st century, Mark. What are we to make of these accounts of demon possession in the Gospels? You're probably aware there are many different ways scholars explain this or explain it away. The Enlightenment and after the Enlightenment really strips away anything other than what we can see, the material world. So it says Mark's making it up. Others say Mark's describing mental illness. Others maybe take it very literally that evil spiritual beings can possess individuals. This might make us think of missionary stories from faraway places. Well, my take, and I wasn't there, Mark and the other gospel writers are describing something spiritually real, something real. Because if we believe in God, we already believe in the spiritual realm. There's not a lot of uh, data about these sorts of spirits in the Bible, which is why I'm pretty cautious about trying to map the you know, spiritual world. I just That goes too far beyond the Bible for me. But it's clear there's something at work in the world that is radically opposed to the kingdom of God. Fleming Rutledge calls it the would-be destroyer of all God's purposes. Jesus talks about it as the ruler of this world, whom he came to judge and destroy. Paul talks about the realm of sin and death 
and our struggle being not against flesh and blood, not against what we can see, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These powers are determined to corrupt, degrade, devalue, and destroy human life and any goodness in the world. It shows up in individuals, including those who use power to harm others. It shows up in systems and cultures, like a virus that corrupts not just the one computer, but the whole network. And in the face of it, we feel powerless, lost, bound, blind, dead in our trespasses. Not so Jesus. Jesus confronts these demonic powers from the very start of his ministry. He did not come just to bring a new way of thinking about God or the world, not just to be a good example to us. He comes bringing the kingdom of God, which is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' power is power that destroys all the powers that seek to destroy us. He speaks, evil flees. This is very, very, very good news. I imagine all of us can think of a place in the world where we would like Jesus to show up and just get the devil out of there. And yet I cannot get past the fact that this man was in the synagogue for so long, a regular participant in the life of this worshiping community without it disturbing the evil that had hold of him one bit until Jesus shows up. Scholar Timothy Gombus has a great section about this in his commentary on Mark. It's a really good commentary if you're looking for such things. He points out that the Bible shows us that people make themselves vulnerable to the demonic in some apparently mundane and unremarkable ways. That evil doesn't always show up in the exorcist style, which I haven't seen, I can guess. Evil doesn't always show up that way because we would recognize it if it did. Gombus again says, spiritual evil has a way of finding its way into a person through unchecked anger, growing jealousy, and the cultivation of a sense of being wronged. That's hard. Anger is tricky for Christians. We know it makes it onto a number of those lists in the New Testament that talk about the works of the flesh that we're not to do. And yet we see that Jesus gets angry. And James tells us we're just not to let the sun go down on our anger. I'm someone who it's taken me a long time and therapy <laughs> to feel anger. Somewhere along the way, I learned that anger isn't something Christians are supposed to feel, so I just shut it down and then wondered why I was depressed. The thing I'm learning is that emotions really just are. They are your body giving us information about what it's experiencing and what we're making of that experience. Anger is a message to us in the bodies that God gave us that something is not right. There's a lot that isn't right. There is a lot where our anger is just a normal response to what we're experiencing. The question isn't, should Christians feel anger? We will. 
but rather what do we do with our anger? That is where evil can get a foothold if we're not careful with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we feel treated unjustly, and that's the thing that produces anger. But then we tell ourselves how unjustly we've been treated, and we keep feeding on that and feeding on that. and We start to feel justified and responding however we want because the other party deserves it. That is exactly where evil can sneak in because that's when we too become tempted to use power to destroy instead of to set free. Jesus came to set us free from the realm of sin and death, including from the sin and evil that can grab hold of us when we least expect it. Jesus is not a magician who can only affect things on the outside. He has the power to renovate the heart, to disrupt generational cycles, to dismantle evil systems without causing more evil. Only Jesus has power like this. Thanks be to God. Jesus' power is a power we can trust because it is a power that brings freedom and abundant life. As we sung this morning, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And last, Jesus' power is a power we can trust because Jesus does not use it to control or coerce others. Jesus amazes the people in the synagogue and eventually all of Galilee. They're all talking about him. What authority, what a teacher. Even the demons listen to him, and that's where it stops. They're amazed but they don't follow. I think about how John the Baptist had been preaching to prepare the way. The Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe, the people are being baptized. Now the Messiah shows up, shows it through his teaching, through this exorcism, and they still don't get it. His power is revealed to them, but they don't kneel. In the next chapter, not only do people not get it, the leaders start to respond with downright hostility. Some prefer power to seeing others set free. But Jesus doesn't use his power to get more power. He doesn't force anyone to follow him. In fact, in Mark, he's constantly trying to keep himself on the down low. He doesn't use his miracles or his healing or his exorcisms to manipulate people into following him. He's not trying to attract the biggest crowd, nor the most elite followers. He doesn't make people compete for his attention or work to be part of his inner circle. His yes is yes, his no is no, and he gives you and me the same freedom. Jesus uses his power completely aligned to the will of the Father which is love through and through. Love does not coerce. Love does not manipulate. Love has open hands, which can be embraced or rejected. We can trust Jesus' power because Jesus doesn't use power to coerce or control. His power is made visible in his love. As we close this commentary on scripture, there is a lot we could reflect on. 
We could reflect on the world and pray for God to break cycles, to remove power from those who use it wrongly. We could reflect and pray for people trapped in behaviors and systems that degrade their humanity or that of others. But again, I am captivated by this man in the synagogue and how is easy it is for me, perhaps you as well, to analyze others and forget to reflect on the place where God gives us the most power we have over ourselves. Where in our own hearts and lives do we need the power of Jesus to break the power of sin and death? Maybe it's a place where we're really, really, really angry. And we get to be angry. Maybe we need the Lord's help to show us what to do with that so it doesn't fester. Maybe there's someone that we, we have tried and we cannot forgive them. Maybe we're jealous. Maybe there's someone who we really find ourselves keeping on trying to control and we've got to release and let them have a yes and a no like us. Maybe there are generational cycles that you are trying to break. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Maybe you cannot trust power today. That's okay. Jesus will sit there with you. Your yes gets to be your yes and your no gets to be your no. Just tell him that. Whatever you can do to invite Jesus near, do that. He is gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your soul. I'd like to let the last word this morning be a verse from a hymn, which is a little late in the season but appropriate for today. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Because it's good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.